You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. Daddy loves you so much. I know. We'll dance at every party. Each image is like a thread, each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. When I first met Lewis, I said to myself, he's a healer, he'll take care of me. Do you still love her? Men fought each other for the privilege of speaking her name. And the tapestry tells a story. And I find out he's just a man. You're in trouble. They're really mad. Who, them? <laughs> they always mad. And the story is our past. I'll never forgive you if you drive him away. I'm not your damn the summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. I saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. Don't get lost. What's wrong with her? Oh, she'll be all right. Have you told anyone? Because if you tell, I swear I'll do you harm. You know I love my sister, but she's not unfamiliar with the inside of a mental hospital. Sunday, which one of your patients you're gonna see, Louis? What's wrong with that lady? Some illness hard to put a finger on. Not every night he's not working. I know he's not. She thinks I'm driving you away. She's a child, Rob. How do you kill someone with Rudy? I put his head inside the wax coffin. Buried it in the graveyard. That's ridiculous. You want to face the dead. But you can't kill people with voodoo. Sometimes a soldier fall on his own sword. Yes. You speak to my wife for that, and I will kill you. Oh, God. No! And welcome back to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm here today. This is Annie Rose Malamet, and I'm here today with Zalika Ibrahimi, and we are talking about the 1997 film Eve's Bayou. Hi, Zalika. Hi, Annie. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk about this film. Um, I was just telling you before we started recording that this is one of my all-time, like probably top 10 favorite films. So I'm really excited to talk about it. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and what you're about? Sure, sure. So um, as Annie has already stated, my name is Zalika Yu Ibarimi, but also I go by Z, so Z is fine. Um, I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Texas at Austin in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. Um, I'm additionally a performance artist. I use mediums of photography. I use research creation as a method to inform my work. And I'm additionally a sex worker who 
is I want to say transitioning out of the game. So that's something that I'm doing. It's not something I'm neither proud of or not proud of. It's just, it's the season of trying to do dissertation work. <laughs> so right. I'm tired, you know, um, but that, but specifically the things that I look at um, are the material um, in digital public spaces that inform the ways that um Black femmes are looked at or viewed intracommunally, particularly if they um, possess a more deviant space. Um, I look at it through the mediums of shame, desire, and pleasure. So that's what I do in short. But like the the bigger themes, if I could pin it down, I would say I do a little bit of Black queer theory, performance studies, um, Black porn and sex work studies, and haunting and horror. So those are some of the things that I do. Amazing. So this is a perfect film for us to talk about. I feel like it embodies so many of those things that you study. Mm -hmm. So when did you first see Eve's Bayou and what did you feel about it when you saw it? (sighs) You know, it's interesting because the first time that I saw Eve's Bayou, I know that I was a child, but it wasn't something that my parents would have allowed me to watch. It was one of those, um, we had HBO. I'll I'll be honest about that. We had HBO. (laughs) And I remember hearing my mother talk about this film one day. And I think it was unnerving to her. I don't know why exactly it was unnerving to her at the time. I was just like, oh, Eve's Bayou. Oh, that's the little girl who was on Full House. I Like, these are the things that I remember. And there was this one day, I had a half day. um, I was in the sixth grade. Actually, it was a half day off from school. And I said, "Okay, well, I'm here turning on my HBO. Parents are at work. I think my grandmother was upstairs or something. So I said, I'm watching this movie. I'm watching it today. And the way I was so confused, (laughs) I was like, wait a second. Like, who is this girl and why is she um, weird? She's so weird. That was my first initial reaction. Like, I just felt like I was not prepared for it a kiss, you know, between an adult and a child. And I was, I was mortified by saying that, but also very confused. So my, my rationale was, oh, well, it must be the way that the dad is saying that it went because he said it and he's an adult. So why wouldn't I believe the adult? Right. You know, that's it, you know, because we were talking a little bit about before we started recording, we both had kind of the same reaction to this film. (laughs) Like I saw it when I was probably way too young to see it also, like I think early 2000s. Um, I saw I watched it with my dad who had no idea that this father daughter incest element was part of the film. And I walked away from it really convinced that Sicily had lied and now watching it as an adult I don't feel that way about it at all I think it's much more complicated than that but Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. so interesting that most people you and I included watched this and immediately sided with the adult man and like without question like even as little kids and like maybe part of that was the trauma of not wanting to think of it of a father as wanting to do that with a child but on the other hand I have to also believe that it's like a larger brainwashing project of young women that we don't believe each other 
<laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think um, one of the things that I was thinking a lot about too um, are some of the ways, and this is something that you could probably help me with too. So I, I'm thinking about it in terms of like an intra-communal discussion of what it looks like um, for Black girls, Black young people, but especially Black girls not to be believed. And I do wonder, like, you know, this is so unique. Like you you told me, you asked me, could I read Kara Keeling's The Witch's Flight in this chapter, in this section? And I thought, how important is it um, to really think about the marketing of the film? You know, one of the things that I know that um, Dr. Kara Keeling's uh, book was talking about was how 50% of those who went to go see the film were white um, and I said, this is interesting and how it was marketed um, under the guise as being a film for African-American women, but also as some sort of art film as well. Right. Because so it had come out. Of- sorry to interrupt. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. I want to hear this. Because it came out around the same time as Waiting to Exhale, right? And Soul Food. So it mm-hmm. was kind of like, which, which Karen Keeling says in her book, like it was, it was kind of... M- it was like a hybrid marketing. It was like marketed to that what what producers believed is that audience, and also the, the like art house audience is what she says in the book. Right, right. So in thinking about that, some of the things that I was wondering, and we talked about this, remember, in terms of like what are some of the films that we could discuss, and we went through quite a few. And I was thinking to myself, even though there isn't like an incestuous dynamic within a film like Lake Mongo, I see that as like a very white film. You know what I'm saying? But there's a way that her friends and like other adults react to Alice's character in that film that kind of signals like, oh, well, she was just doing these inappropriate things versus looking at her as being a child that was exploited by this adult man. You know what I'm saying? The parents try to err on the side of like seeing that this was wrong, but other people were like, oh no, I would have never dated her if I knew that she was doing this. And I think about that, like that's like a white intracommunal kind of discussion. And I was wondering, I wonder how this carries on and like throughout white life and like social life. And I see Eve's Bayou, a similar conversation is happening um, intercommunally among African-Americans as well. But, oh, this is the part that I thought was rich in Dr. Killing's work, is how she opens the text by talking about how Eve's Bayou was established through this master-slave dynamic. And how it is unclear because of the way that um, Eve, as the adult narrator, states like, you know, there might have been some sort of like, what was the word? It was um, gratitude. Okay, I don't remember specifically. but It was something like a word like gratitude, like her ancestor was um, an enslaved person. It was gratitude, who, yes. Yeah. Like, it was gratitude. And like, it was an, an enslaved uh, person who acquired all of this land from her master and in gratitude bore him 16 children, right? But it's that perhaps in gratitude right. that there's this 
fuzziness of the lines of, oh, well, was this some sort of loving relationship? But we know in the context of slavery, everything is convoluted. Everything is fuzzy, fuzzy. Everything is a bit of a blurred line. And we would know there's no equal dynamic between a master and a slave. But we can also measure that there are certain things as a enslaved person that she probably negotiates to get certain types of resources. She has to use aspects of agency to do what she needs to do. But how interesting is it that those lines of consent are blurred at the beginning of the storyline? And then we actually see that blur happen again between Cecily and her father, um, Louis. Yes, it it opens exactly. It sets it up from the get go for this. You know what what is what is consent? What is power? What it like? All of these questions. What is memory? If Mm -hmm. two people remembered something completely differently, what is the truth? Like you know, we have the perspective of Eve, and then we have the perspective of the master. Like already set up in the beginning. Right. Yeah, it it's yeah, it's already and then with that grainy black and white footage overlaid, like we're already in this place of like, is this the present? Is it the past? I'm not sure, right? And then that through line kind of goes through the whole film. Right. Um these are all oh my god this movie is so rich but let's let's talk a little bit about i just before we get into the plot i want to talk a little bit about the actual production of the film um and how it was made so uh it's a 1997 american southern gothic film very much in the southern gothic literary tradition uh written and directed by cassie lemons this was her directorial debut um, this film stars Samuel L. Jackson, Lisa Nicole Carson, Journey Smollett, who's recently been in Lovecraft Country, um, and Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Megan Good, and Diane Carroll. So that's what, what a cast. I'm sorry. No, like, like star studded. It's the casting. I think part of what makes this one of my all time favorite films is the casting is just perfect. Like, there's no, there's nothing I would change. It's, uh, and interestingly, I did learn that Megan Good, who's been one of my favorite actresses for a long time, and I really think she's so like underutilized and underappreciated. She, Mm -hmm. because I really, I think her ability to, encompass this like innocent child who is on the cusp of womanhood is just like amazing in this film the way that she does it and the way that she's able to do that being in that space herself as a child actress is also really brilliant um and she was actually originally supposed to play eve but the film took so long to make that by the time Cassie Lemons, four years later, she was no longer 10 years old. She was 14. And Ooh. yeah, Cassie Lemons cast her as Cicely. And she had like known the script by heart already since she was 10 years old. So I thought that was fascinating, just like how in the space of four years, young girls become a completely different kind of girl. Whoa, I wonder how that made her feel. Yeah, because that's 
changes the you know the dynamisms of like I was expected to play this like like I'm still playing a child, but I was expected to play a child who has to like at least be a sort of witness. Yeah. Taking this perspective, but now I'm the child that has to be a part of this event. Right. And I wonder, like, that's a shift. Like, that takes a different kind of preparation. And I'm just like, my goodness. Right. Huh. Whoa. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I learned that from watching um, a talk that Cassie Lemons did with TIFF in 2019. Uh, so, Cassie Lemons, this was her first this first film that she directed um she was in spike lee's school days she was in the film vampire's kiss um i don't know if you've seen that it's really it's that's a weird one um and she's also she's in jonathan demi silence of the lambs and then she's also in Candyman as virginia madsen's best friend what a career, actually. That's yeah, yeah. Very, also a very horror-leaning career yeah. until maybe recently because she directed Eve's Bio and then she directed Dr. Hugo, which I haven't seen from 1998. And then she did The Caveman's Valentine in 2001, which is also kind of like a true crime horror film. Um, she did Talk to Me in 2007, Black Nativity in 2013, and then her highest grossing film is 2019's Harriet, um, which... That is so interesting. Yeah, which I, I have full disclosure, have not seen. I'll be honest, I haven't seen that one either. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't, but... You know, I read wow. so many bad reviews that I was like, I don't know if I want to watch this, but... I might anyway because I love Cassie there, Lemon. There was a lot of debates around that film. I might get around to watching it eventually, but there there were so many debates. But yeah, no, this is interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, you know, it makes sense. Like the first film, I think, what did that make? Like fourteen or fifteen million dollars. That's how much there. it grows. Yeah, yeah, around that um, number. And then I'm really, really thinking about. I forgot that she did talk to me. I forgot yeah. about that. Right. Which yeah, is also a very different film to me. That's a very different movie. Yeah, and then also Black Nativity is a completely different film too. Like yes, we have a family yes. structure in that film, but it's very different from these other ones. Uh, the other one, the other thing that I didn't know—I don't know if you knew this—is that there is a whole other character that was supposed to be in this movie. That, I heard about that. Yeah, that saw it. That saw the, the the yes that saw what actually happened between Cecily and Lewis. His name was Uncle Tommy, and he was a I believe like a nonverbal person in the film right. with a disability. Right. So it's a huge difference because in that version there is like in the version we get there is no truth, but in that version there is a truth that exists but can't be spoken. So mm. that's a bit mm. different, right? Like there's less ambiguity there. Um, and Cassie Lemon said that it was actually really traumatic to have to cut that character from the film because that wow. was one of the characters who was based on a real life family member. So wow. it was she didn't she it was like a traumatic experience to have to do that 
But she does say that what she likes about the theatrical release is the ambiguity. And because I mean, a lot of times there won't be a witness. Yes. You know, things like this happen. Yeah. And I, you know, she doesn't go into it in the interview I watched, but I'm the the studio strongly encouraged her to get rid of that character and she doesn't say why. And I would be interested to know that. Just I wonder you know. too. I could speculate the reasons why. Hmm. And I, yeah. Uh, what do you? Okay. What do you think? Because I don't. I mean, I want to. I. It's hard for me to make a decision. Like I want to see the director's cut, which was actually shown in 2016 at Ebert Fest, because Roger Ebert named this film as the best film of 1997. So this, the director's cut was shown. I would like to see the director's cut so I could sort of like assess for myself. I feel like it's possible that studios, I mean, sometimes studios are like, this is too complicated for the audience. Like you, you know, that's, or it could, it's possible that, I don't know. Like it's, I wonder. I, don't, I have no idea what their what their logic could be for that. Like, I could think that maybe it was too complicated of a story, or like the studio wanted there to be ambiguity. I don't know. Eh. I wonder. Part of me wants to say, and I hate to be this person. Part of me feels like I think that it actually made it less complicated to have the other character. Yeah, and because that scene is so taboo. That the taboo-ness is probably for so many people what makes it the art house film. That it almost, I think it speaks to a truth, but it almost does a violence to Sicily as a character that for over 20 years, you know, now, like, what is this, 23 years later now, that people are still looking at this character as she was just a mentally unstable child. And, And here's the thing. Mental disability doesn't stop people from also, of course, being abused sexually or being, you know, um, survivors of incest or those kinds of things. But I do think that the whole thing was this tabooness of this child to set this character up. And I think that there's a bit of a an anti-blackness to that as well Um, and a bit of them trying to buy into the trope of the... um, sexualized black girl or child or the adultified black child or or girl instead of just saying, okay, clearly this was a survivor or somebody who was harmed. No, instead we want you to guess maybe this is just some little like bad seed sort of situation, you know, going on. And this is, this is why I'm thinking of it in those terms. I could be wrong, but given the, the dynamics of even what uh, Dr. Keeling was saying in her work, well, listen, the whole thing was about trying to create this humanity for all of the characters. But in a roundabout way, this particular instance created that lack of common sense notion of what a little girl should be right. and the blackness what does some of that work of like, whoa, this is a little strange. Right. And then my mind kind of goes to then instead of perpetuating anti-blackness is the film actually questioning our anti-blackness in, you know, Mm and that we assumed that Lewis's Mm -hmm. 
or our own our misogynoir that the film assumes that Lewis that we assume that Lewis's story is the truth like is right. it you know it becomes there there really are truly no answers when you take that element right. out of it like what right. you know why did I believe that like why did right. I believe I, that I think Lemon had an agenda I think she was questioning it I wonder if the studio was willing totally. to go down that yeah with her I'm like I feel like a violence probably on the studios <laughs> you know what I'm saying and a violence on our end in terms of our gaze and our view and then Lemons is like really putting it out there for us like okay so all of these years <laughs> that this film has existed and people are still pointing the finger at the child so I agree you know totally I think it's, uh, that's an also yeah. very important distinction like Lemon's agenda versus the studio because it is also possible that the studio was like well it's more titillating if we don't have that character like it's more exciting if we don't know like it becomes it becomes something sexier and more like Lolita-esque yeah instead of like um you know, a maligned black family drama like Soul Food or Waiting to Exhale. It's like, oh, it becomes like more sexier and art house. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, that is a very important distinction. Uh, something else I thought was interesting is that Moselle, Debbie Morgan, um, Moselle had three husbands in the film and also in real life, Morgan also had four husbands. <laughs> I don't know if they all died, but, <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. Okay, that's actually kind of funny, but yeah. The kiss kiss scene between Megan Good and Samuel L. Jackson, which I never hear any outcry about. And I feel like if this happened now, there this would be because we're in this like moral panic phase in the U.S. of like everything is pedophilia. Right, especially since like with cuties. Yes, yes. everything that's going on like the director who you know is also a black woman is going through a lot and people have had like a very knee-jerk reaction from right-wing um audiences to black radical leftists i've yes. seen like this reaction to it and i mean i understand it the question is how are the children you know going through this process i i do agree that that is ultimately what matters most right um but Cecily, I, I'm not gonna lie, like that moment reminded me of like the innocence when like <laughs> you know, that moment where that child kisses the woman and you're like, What the hell? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? See that moment, but in this that would have never been able to work. No, it would have never been able, like people would it would be there would be outcry. I mean, Megan Good said that they had to film that scene about fifteen times. Um <laughs> okay i'm not even gonna lie that just i know i don't know like you know listen like this is one of my favorite movies and i would never want that scene to not exist because it's such an important part of the movie but at the same time it really brings about these questions of like the exploitation of young girls and in the (laughs) film industry and what were what were the things that were in place to to make her feel okay during that because we're talking, Megan Good is a person who, huh. so Megan Good, 
as a person is interesting mm. because this is someone that we actually got to watch grow up into being a um a sex symbol to a lot of people yes as well so like i remember when she was in like the friday you know franchise um she was also in cousin skeeter yep. when she played Nina, you know, like, right, I I did too. And I I didn't even realize what was going on. But I was (laughs) just like, Oh, wow, she's really pretty. Yeah. Um, But I forget she was very young then too. But in my mind, I don't know what it was. It wasn't registering to me because I was younger than she was when I first started watching Cousin Skeeter. And then you see her in other things such as um, you got served where she plays beautiful and she's supposed to be like this super sexy, like quick witted friend. You know what I'm saying? All those things. But we got to watch her grow into this character that people were like, oh, Megan Good is fine as hell. Right. Like fine as hell. And Megan Good, which is always in like the same. She was very sentence. sexualized from a very young age. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so I do remember that. I wonder what is what did that do for her? And I mean, she doesn't, of course, have to speak on it, but I do wonder what are her feelings, you know, looking back at that. Because you're right. What were the things that were set up in place? Because here's the thing. As outraged as people were about cuties, I will say that they didn't have um, young girls on top of, like, men doing things. There was that distance, I know that there was like the gyrating and the things and those type and things being done in front of grown people that really, really upset people. You know what I'm saying? But we actually saw those lips touch. Yes. In this film. It wasn't like a, oh, we're going to do a head thing and we're going to imply that it just. No, it it, happened. It happens. Yeah. And it's I mean, I think that's part of what makes this film so subversive and transgressive. (laughs) Have you have you seen Pretty Baby? It's a movie I talked about on this podcast before with Brooke Shields. I have not seen that. No. Well, I've it's... I've heard about it and I've seen clips. Yeah. It's an interesting film to compare to this one because it also takes place in the bayou. Um and it is about I did this movie. And the reason why I remember seeing this movie is because for some reason I was in college and mm-hmm. like it was on TV for some reason. And we were like, oh, that's why this movie was so controversial. But yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's about a child sex worker and you, she has a relationship with an adult man and you see her naked in it. And I would, it's an interesting comparison with that, with this film. Um, Brooke Shields was sexualized a lot as a child. Oh, yeah. Because well, yeah. something else. That was kind of like she was like, in like a Calvin Klein ad where she is implying that she's not wearing any underwear. I believe she was. Right. Yeah, she was interviewed for Playboy at a very young age. Yeah, she was very sexualized. I mean, there are just certain female celebrities in the culture that for whatever reason get this, you know, really because I don't. And I don't want to speak too soon because I don't know everything about her, but I don't believe that Journey Smollett got the same treatment that Megan Good did growing up in the spotlight. She actually did talk about that recently. She talked about in some interview or something where um, growing up, people made passes at her a lot, you know, um, on in various instances. I need to find it. When, when this is over, I'm going to send it to you. But it's interesting because... 
you know that there's a whole dialogue. So I feel like we're breaking one of the walls. There's like a whole dialogue right now happening right now on social media in regards to pedophilia. We know that this is happening oh, yeah. as we're discussing. Yeah. It's a whole thing. And one of those things we were talking about is like, is size a determining factor, you know, right. in something like pedophilia? And what we're really, really learning here is like size, color. Yeah, there are reasons why people gravitate to certain people. But at the end of the day, we're talking about children, um, particularly black girls, as a very vulnerable population of people. You know, and that can't be ignored or dismissed. But I do think by and large, I always heard that like Johnny Smollett was a um, a cute kid. And sadly, unfortunately, she was dealing with people just being predatory toward her behind the scenes. But I remember really, really hearing growing up that, you know, Megan Good was sexy. Yes, that's yeah, that's what I, you know, I think all... Young women in the industry and especially young black women are like constantly predated on and like exploited. Mm -hmm. It's just in mm -hmm. it's interesting to me who gets the Megan Good or the Brooke Shields treatment like fully like adultified. Aaliyah. Yeah, like Aaliyah, Aaliyah. exactly. Yeah, it's it is it. it I wonder what the criteria is for that. Like, is it exploitative parents who let these girls take roles that are too mm -hmm. sexual? Like, what it, you know, what is, and I don't even know, I don't have the answers because these are, you know, these are movies that I wouldn't want to not exist. So that I, I grapple with that as well. Like the. It's hard. Yeah, it is. It is really hard. hard. Yeah. Especially with this one, because the kiss scene is is really important to the film and so we, so we open in this film where we, we were kind of talking about before with these grainy black and white images which immediately positions <laughs> us in this you know is this now is it the past and the narrator mm -hmm. who's the adult eve is telling mm -hmm. us about this memory so the theme of the mm -hmm. film is already like memory and 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 truth and she says, the summer I killed my father, which is a very, you know, incendiary line to open with and something that is interrogated in the film as well. Like, did she actually kill her father? Um, that was, yeah, that wasn't that reminded me of like when Octavia Butler, how she opened Kindred, where it was like, I lost my arm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Whoa. It, right. it, it puts you right there like you I killed my father whoa just we just start gut punch yeah immediate <laughs> and she she tells us about the lore <coughs> excuse me the lore of the bayou the mm. lore of this land which you were talking about a little bit um this family is the descendants of Eve and Jean-Paul Baptiste um, who were named for this enslaved woman, Eve, um, who, like you were saying, she was given this plot of land by the, the, the master and perhaps in gratitude gifted him with all of these descendants who are who are the characters of the film. Um, mm. And Eve is is named for her, which is mm. also 
you know, interesting. It, it pays homage to this woman. It pays homage to this woman who had to occupy many different spaces, just as the child Eve does. Um, mm. And I don't, you know, the other part of it was Eve, one of Eve's nickname in the film. She has many nicknames in the film because she's a very, like, mutable character. One of her nicknames mm-hmm. is Red, um, which is has to do with her coloring and that made me think about the enslaved eve and the master relationship and how eve herself is almost like a physical reminder of that of that relationship Mm. um Mm. and yeah just something just something i thought about on which i hadn't thought about before in this viewing wow I really appreciate this acknowledgement because it makes me realize too, had Megan Good portrayed Eve, we also would have gotten a different feeling too. Yeah. And part of me wonders too that, you know, as the little one is lighter skinned with red hair and as, you know, Eve is lighter skinned with red hair, some of these reactions that even, um, uh, please help me, Lynn Whitfield's character's name. Oh, Roz. Yes, Roz has a very contentious relationship we already see with um, Cecily. We already saw that from like the beginning. Part of it is like, okay, we get it. It's, you're getting into those teenage, preteen years or whatever it is. But the other part of it is like, I wonder how much of that was also rooted in colorism. Right. Being um, harder on the dark-skinned child. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, because Megan Good isn't even dark-skinned, but it's just right. like... I guess comparatively, it's like she's darker than um, Eve. Eve. Poe. And Poe, even. Yeah. So you see this immediately. And so it does actually require a different reading of the film than if Megan were to portray Eve. Right. Unless Cecily was even darker than, you know, the, you know, Megan, if she portrayed Eve. So I think that this is really, really important because you're right. She is an embodiment of that. Eve is an embodiment. If she was named for her, um, right, it does make you wonder what does she take after, you know? Right, right. Um, that, that history and that legacy, you know, point toward. And I'm also interested too, and in just like you know, and I mean, I know you'll probably get to us. So I won't say anything else. <laughs> yeah. There's, oh my god. There's just so much, right? Like right, it's this right. film is just endlessly provoking. Um, so. In, it's the 1960s in the Louisiana Bayou and the Batistes, it opens with this party, um, which is really a very brilliant way to open because it very it introduces us to each character and the dynamics that each character they have with each other, like very quickly. So mm-hmm. also note that everybody's dresses are amazing. I was like... <laughs> Especially um, Lynn, Whitf- Lynn Whitfield's dress. I was like, oh my God. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> like, Whitfield, first of all, she is just, um, she's iconic for her looks anyway. Like, she's always given Diane Carroll. Like, every time I saw her, she was giving. Yeah. Diane and it's Carroll. so interesting that Diane Carroll is in this as like this maligned kind of witch figure. Cause I always think okay. of Diane Carroll is so glamorous. And mm-hmm. she's like, that that's not her role in this film. Uh, right, she right. got to sort of do another character, which was really cool. Right, right. 
we get introduced to to everybody at this party and like the mood of it. So let's talk about the mood of this party. How would you characterize? How would you characterize this? I want to say on one hand, it was a very black party, but it was like a very black bougie party. But you can tell that this was the kind of bougie-ness that still comes with the um, the delights of some sort of deviant pleasures. You know what I'm saying? You get the sense that like people probably sneak off into certain rooms. Right. Um, but this is also supposed to be family friendly. So like kids, you can be here for a little bit, but past a certain time, you need to go to bed. You know what I'm saying? Those kinds of dynamics. But I also know that for a child, it must be very exciting, you know, to be able to be able to take part and do the things that you see adults doing. So this is kind of like blurring of the lines. All kids want to be able to listen to adult conversations. Yeah, so that's wanna, a huge you know, theme in this film too. Yeah. Right. They be part of the business. Yeah. You know, so that's the feeling that I get. Yeah, and we get we get introduced to Maddie Moreau, who's kind of like a recurring ancillary character. She also interests me as a character, um, just because I've watched this so many times, so I sort of just focus on a different thing every time. And I was thinking about her this time and like her I wouldn't go as far as to call her fat, but her like thickness in this film mm-hmm. is denoted as like her sluttiness also and we kind of get that immediately in the beginning when she's dancing with her husband and he's like feeling up Mm -hmm. on her and like the grandma makes a comment about her ass and it's you know (laughs) that (laughs) that was very prevalent to me on this watch and we also get these camera flashes which um, somebody's taking pictures. Uncle Harry is taking pictures and we get these flashes of the camera and this also kind of recalls like the photo is a document and like the photo is a true document and archives yes the archive and when when the camera flashes that there's a black and white view of the character and um Mm -hmm. again we you know we are reminded that this is currently happening in the film but it is actually eve's memory um right oh and then there's also like this moment i feel like where there's a slight competition where it's like Cecily, Roz, and Maddie Moreau mm-hmm. all trying at the same time in this setting. Yes. Yeah. And that that's that's my next note actually. Like there's this we get the the setup between the dynamics of the family. So we see that Eve mm-hmm. is like the middle child who gets kind of neglected. And right. You know, uh, Roz like lavishes affection on Poe, who is the little boy baby child, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis lavishes affection on Cecily, who's the the eldest daughter, and dances with her at the party. Um, like he dances with Maddie Moreau, and then he dances with Cecily, mm-hmm. which is where the, right. ed- the all the Oedipal shits kind of begins. Yeah. Um, and so, so Eve is very jealous of her father and sister's relationship, um, and she runs back out to the the carriage house in the back to be alone, kind of brood, and falls asleep, flashlight in hand. And <laughs> this is also like 
so I don't know this this whole opening of the film is so like triggering as I don't it just it reminds me of being a kid and seeing things and not really understanding them and but knowing on a level what was happening and because in this scene she awakens to the to two adults whispering and making out and groping and it's her father having sex with Maddie Moreau uh, and she gasps and she's just absolutely horrified and shaking and breaks a bottle and that's when they see her and Lewis comforts her and and Eve even apologizes mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm, also struck mm-hmm. me and he doesn't tell her not to apologize um, it's like this immediate kind of gaslighting where like he literally just gaslights this girl, yes like, yeah he dismisses like, Maddie. That's like you saw this okay right right <laughs> and he doesn't even say anything he's just like he takes her away and he says daddy loves you so much and it's like okay well that wasn't up for debate so right. you're that's right. like it's a very abuser logic like cutting someone off with love at the pass before they can criticize you um yes which the oh. adults in this film do a lot to the children in this film like they're yeah. like well you know he loves you it's like okay well and right. <laughs> she's like you love mama and he says your mama is the most beautiful perfect woman i've ever met which isn't I love her. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, oh, she's perfect. It's like it immediately sets Roz up as like the perfect doctor, the perfect doctor's wife, the perfect doctor's housewife. And um, Maddie Moreau is like the 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 side piece that he needs, whatever to you know, as an outlet. Not a person that you actually marry even though she is married but still, right like. right <laughs> so eve asks her father also why he never dances with her and he says from now on we'll dance at every party so roz comes right roz comes out and it gets this we get this interaction between roz and lewis where she's like what's wrong with her like I know my child. <laughs> like, why Why is she acting like this? And mm-hmm. Cicely questions Eve about where she was. She calls her Rabbit. So Eve is the only one in the film that has all these nicknames, right? Like Rabbit, Red, right? She's a very mm-hmm. – and being the middle child is a very, like, mutable position of mm-hmm. – I just see a lot of people projecting on her. And mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. her as like a conduit of memory and trauma, like it's she's, and that is her fate, right? As the seer, like she mm-hmm. she has mm-hmm. to observe. I also think there's a thing there with um, Eve in regards to gender expression as well, because we see that Cecily is supposed to be the common sense, actually, in the ways that. Kara Keeling talks about it, where we're supposed to see that she is feminine in comparison to someone like her father, who's supposed to be very masculine. But you have this like little girl who wants to play in the dirt, in the mud. She likes to get dirty. She likes to have her overalls. So it's very much like Cecily is like, I'm a lady. You need to like 
get it together. You're a girl. You know, totally. you, you get those. Yeah. And that actually kind of because Cassie Lemon said that Eve is based on her, but is also based on Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird, which is another famous tomboy. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of. You know, I have my own gripes as like a of high femme person with the way that feminine girls are treated in film and <laughs> the kind of um, upholding of the tomboy as um, a, her- a hero figure and the feminine character as like an evil. It's a very, it's a very early, like dated um, feminist conversation, right? That coming back i think we saw this um even within bell hooks's discussion of beyonce i agree actually with um a lot of her critiques of beyonce but i think yeah we can talk about patriarchal consumption and we can talk about the male gaze and all those kinds of things but i mean you know what i'm saying like the, it, it gets to a certain point a certain level as somebody who's also um high femme right and we know that these ex- these types of forms of expressions of femininity track um, as deviant in its own sense as well. Yes. You know, it it's not even as associ- it's not even as associated as more womanly because it's too much. No, it's too exactly. It's too much. It's like devil woman. Like you right, can never. Right. Oh, it's that's too sexy. <laughs> like that's right. yeah. That's and then it becomes when it's so obviously not for men. And it then it becomes this as for you or it you know it, it's your gender presentation it becomes um, right even more suspect it's you know which is and in this movie it's you know a little bit more complicated because I feel like in some ways Cecily is trying to be kind of the perfect woman the way that she sees her mother and the way that she sees that her what her father desires <laughs> um, right. But that is, yeah, that is definitely there. Like the yeah. the feminine daughter is the the one that couldn't. The she's not mutable like Eve. Like tomboys are seen as mutable, is seen as like crossing between. Like Eve crosses between the worlds in these multiple ways, right? Like she trans. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. She like transgresses gender. She is a physical embodiment of the memory of um, rape, the legacy of rape and in slavery, just by virtue of being a light skinned person with red hair in this particular universe. And Mm -hmm, yeah, so mm -hmm. she's embodying like I think her tomboyishness is she's embodying multiple states of being just the way that she embodies multiple states of reality by being in the real world and also by being a seer. Right, because the problem is, like, in this universe, too, we know, um, at least within, like, Blackness to the world, whether it be intercommunally or interracially, that um, masculinity and femininity are not categories of performance that are accepted in the quote-unquote Black female body. Neither one go. When you're trying to be feminine, people call it masculine. When you're trying to be masculine, people call it feminine. And even if they say it's just like, wrong you're wrong you know what i'm saying right so well and in in this way you sort of see how both eve and cicely can't win like they can't yeah either of them and roz can't win and maddie moreau can't win and no one no one can win it's oh and well and then it's just like um what is it 
Oh, and, and uh, Aunt Moselle can't win either because right. it's just like you're this um, widow figure. I think in a roundabout way, it's interesting to see her as somebody, even though Maddie Moreau is supposed to be like the whore. I almost feel like if we dig deeper, we'll see the same things in like Aunt Moselle as well. Totally. Because of infidelity and those other things like Black Widow. Like maybe if you weren't hoeing around, you know what I'm saying? One of your husbands would still be here. You know what I'm saying? Those, that, those kinds of logics as well. Totally. So Cicely, this is a very interesting scene because Cicely is, you know, telling, Eve tells Cicely what she saw and um, mm-hmm. Eve begins crying and telling Cicely that she saw her father with Maddie and Cicely is like, that's not what happened. And this is the first time that we get a memory within a memory where the two girls are, you, we see them in the sh- in the carriage house watching Cicely's re- retelling of what happened. She says, and she says, I'm going to tell you what happened. And she weaves a story and, you know, says that, oh, Maddie Moreau was feeling sick. So daddy took her to the carriage house to get her some medicine. And then he made a joke and that's when she was leaning on him. And that's what you saw. And, you know, they both know it's a lie, but Eve chooses to believe it to be able to go on with her life <laughs> and, it, you know, to, to get over this trauma they observe the adults scuffling outside and it's Moselle and her husband Harry and Harry is drunk and wants to drive and Lewis is fighting him over it and Cicely comes out like a little adult and is like you're how how do you're you're carrying on out here and I'm not gonna go inside until daddy comes in and then we get these more like black and white flashes, like a spider, a coin spinning. It's very Southern Gothic. And we get Eve's kind of her beginning of her precognition. And then we see her putting these flowers on her uncle's graves. And these are Moselle's husbands. And her third husband, Harry, has just died. And Eve comforts Moselle in her morning bed and she's like wake up you got clients coming and she helps Moselle get ready this is when we see that even Moselle are linked um they're both pre they both have precognitive abilities they're both like the seers mm-hmm. Moselle is a local um respected psychic counselor who sees clients and tells them they ask questions and she holds their hands and she's able to see the answers. Right. Right. I also noticed that Moselle and Eve are linked um, in that way. And they're also linked visually. They look similar. They do. Yeah. It, you know, Eve looks more like she could be Moselle's child. So, Moselle sees these the ghosts of her three husbands in the mirror. I love that shot. And it's yeah, I mean, everything with Moselle is so good in this film. She because she is also embodies like all of the contradictions, like you were saying, right? Like she's Mm -hmm. a respected psychic counselor, but she's also uh, you know, a slut like Maddie Moreau is, but doesn't get that label. She's Mm -hmm. a psychic, but is somehow not maligned by the religious community. 
Like she right. and you and we see also when she takes a client that she uses a combination of Christianity and traditional mm-hmm. African spirituality, which is so important. Yes. It's important. Like so I practice um Ifa. Um, and I'm actually in a, like in a mixed house, meaning that, um, my godmother, um, is someone who, um, is in the Lukumi tradition and the Ifa tradition through Isheshe. And so one of the things that we really, really know about a lot of our traditions is because of, you know, coloniality, we often had to kind of, um, synchronize um, various religious forms to kind of keep these things together. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, and I'm also Christian. So how interesting is it that I'm Christian and I'm practicing these like traditional forms of um, African religion and all of these things. So when I see a film like this, it reminds me like even we, we see aspects of like root work. We see like aspects of hoodoo, which is a very African-American tradition. We see, um, Vodun in in the sense of the history of their family as people who speak French Creole, which is also important too. Right. So there's a very diasporic, it's African-American, but they're pulling in other pieces of diaspora to tell this story. It's being weaved in. And I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and from the article that we read about the conjure women, also the the way that conjure women would incorporate Christianity into spiritual practices, like there's mm-hmm. a lot of historical precedents there. Mm-hmm. So, oh, the other thing Moselle says is that she's able to see strangers' lives, but she can't see her own life. Like she's blind to the fates of oh. her husbands and of herself. So Eve watches Moselle take clients, um, kind of like learning from her. One of the clients asks about her son, who she can't locate. And Moselle Mm -hmm. has a vision of like a needle going into an arm. And there it's her visions are very much like there's always the bayou right like there's always the bayou trees and marshland and then like uh overlaid with these other memories and it's always black and white and grainy and she sees this man using drugs and that's when she tells him you know you're gonna find him next tuesday it's in detroit at saint michael's hospital he's on drugs um mm-hmm. And it's like we don't see all of that in the vision. She she feels she has it. To it yeah. Right. Yeah, she has she, like it's almost like doing a close read. Yeah. But it's just like through images. It's just like in her mind, like I have to weave them together. I have to fabulate to construct this narrative. Yeah. That's a I mean, that's just a gift. Like even with just the visions. Cause not everybody would know how to read them. Right, right. Yeah, and oh. Eve is having them, and she doesn't know how to read them yet. Right. Eve and Moselle. She also gives another client a spell who's begging for financial help. And mm-hmm. uh, Eve and Moselle go for a walk, and like they, they discuss voodoo. And um, Eve says that Lewis doesn't you – know, he's like, I thought Daddy didn't want you doing voodoo. And Moselle is like, meh, you know, whatever, like – it's right, you know right. whatever makes this woman feel better she's like i don't know if it works or not but 
<laughs> it's right, which is in very con- contrast to Elzora, who we'll talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. Very different conjure figure. So very. Mm-hmm. They come home to find Roz. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, just like the bouginess I was thinking about in terms of just um, it's upper class guess, versus upper class. this, yeah, this yeah, very yeah, maligned yeah. outsider woman. So right, right. they come home to find Roz upset because Maddie Moreau has called the house, I assume, and mm-hmm. Moselle, Roz, and Grandma discuss while Eve and Poe eavesdrop, and Cicely is like such a snitch, and she's like, "I'm gonna tell them that you're listening," but then as soon as they run away, she starts listening. Right, right. Uh, Eve accompanies Lewis on house calls, including one that is obviously sexual, which always kind of disturbed me. Like, even when he's with his kid, like, he can't, he can't not do this. Like, Uh, that that woman who's like, can you give me something for the pain? Right. (laughs) He's always doing work. Yeah, (laughs) he's just like fucking all these women. Uh, And this is when Roz and Moselle, they go for a walk and Roz says she met Lewis and she thought he was this healer, but actually he's just a man. Uh, And Moselle says, we're two of a kind, my brother and I. One day he'll turn around and see you for the first time. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting that Moselle I mean, Moselle is just able to sort of embody that. This is like a very masculine way of being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she, it's not really questioned. Like she is, she's questioned in some ways, like when, you know, she has the vision about the kid and she doesn't want the kids to leave the house, but people kind of just respect her. Like she's kind of just allowed to get away with stuff. Uh, Right. So Moselle and Roz, they like wander to the pier area, which is this market. And Roz wants to get her fortune told by Elzora. So who is Elzora? Can you describe her for us? I just want to say like she's like this older conjure woman who clearly has some of the I want to say she's old school with her conjure. Like I want to say she's a little bit more traditional in her style as well. And I'm also gathering that she's poor as well, um, in contrast to someone like Moselle. And the her style and the way she does things is kind of looked and it's frowned upon, actually, because she seems, in comparison, she's supposed to be juxtaposed as like the more evil version of this conjure work, right. which is already like, because, you know, her face is like... In this like white, she has white paint on, like a death mask. Like a death, right? Exactly. So those kinds of things, it's like, oh, she's more spooky. Ooh, yeah, and she has like the know? third eye painted on her forehead. Yeah, and we also know that part of it is part of it is acting too, because one of the things that I think a lot about how is like it's her job to be kind of spooky. People come right. to her because yes. she's spooky. They want the experience. You know, <laughs> the whole experience. But I think at the end of the day, when she goes home, she's probably just relaxed, chilling. You know what I'm saying? But to Eve and everybody else, it's like, oh my God, she's like horrific. Yes. But they kind of 
want that. She's a part of the spectacle. She's a spectacle. She's a scapegoat. She lives on the outside mm-hmm. of town. She lives in these marshlands as opposed to the Baptistes who live in this beautiful house. Like she's she is the typical conjure woman figure that the community is is needs but right. and, and projects on their all of their fears, but also okay. needs and goes to. So right. she, yeah, and her and Moselle also have some animosity, like we find out in mm-hmm. this scene, which I always kind of am like, what happened there? And right, <laughs> like the two, the two witches coming face to face. It's such a powerful scene with the two of mm-hmm. them. Roz gets her uh, her bones read by Elzora, who tells her that she is in pain, but in three years she'll be happy again. <laughs> and right, she says, "Look to your children." And Moselle steps in defiantly to have her fortune told. And Elzora tells her some things are better left unsaid, which Cassie Lemon says is actually a story that her mother told her that her and her sister went to go get their fortunes read. And a woman was like, wouldn't do it. And was like, some things are better left unsaid. Uh, And she was like, well, that's a great story. I have to put that in a movie. So, yeah. So Elzora is like, you know, I don't, you know, if some things are left unsaid. And then, but then when Moselle insists, she's like, You're a black widow. Every man who gets with you is a dead man. And Moselle flips, breaking Elzora's change jar and runs away. And this is when she has a very disturbing vision of a child. Um, with a with a train running by, which we learn later is like an amalgamation of visions, right? Because of Lewis's death, but she reads it as this child is run over by a train, and she mm-hmm. collapses in the street. And this is mm-hmm. kind of when Roz, this is when Roz and Moselle like scoop up all the kids, and they they start to not let them out of the house because um, Moselle had a vision of a child dying. <laughs> so, no, because I'm I'm thinking a little bit just about what you were saying um, before we even like when you know Moselle's getting her reading, and one of the things that happens a lot within these African spiritual traditions too is. A lot of it, like we know that Moselle already knows this about herself. That's why she's angry. But one of the things that we learn about a lot of the readings when we get them done is one, there's like a very Western kind of like colonial understanding of readings, whereas everything is supposed to be spooky. But one of the things that I think is really, really useful that I don't know if people have noticed before, but one of the things that I've always learned with readings is that when you get them, sometimes it's not that you don't know, it's just that you can't remember. So you're getting information that is kind of hidden to you, but it's actually there. You just don't really remember it in a sense. And the other piece of it too is people typically in these traditions do not tell you something unless there is something that we know can be done for the person. So you don't just give somebody bad news without giving them some piece to kind of help them throughout the process. It's like, you're going to die. And then that's the end of it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't do something like this. So I thought it was interesting that because Moselle and this woman, they have this beef. It seems she like Elzora was just saying that just to be a bitch. Yes, it had, that was not a real reading. Yeah. It was just like, I'm just doing this to be rude. Because notice how, like, she said to Roz, look to your children. 
that is actually a useful piece of information. You know what I'm saying? You know, it may not seem useful, but it is. But ultimately but it Mozelle, is. Yeah. Especially when, when, when we get to the like, end. Look, everybody just going to die. Like, and you know it. You're a black widow. Deal with it. But the the real thing would have been, okay, this is the thing that happens, but you could do this thing to prevent this thing in the future. Or this will happen, but one day someone will come into your life. You know what I'm saying? Right. Who will... Who won't like they will they will live to be a an age that you can you know what I'm saying you can actually right kind of live with like yeah. in a roundabout way it's painful yeah no it was very much like their historical beef that they have with each other <laughs> which like I have to, I just have to wonder what the background is there it's you might have learned from this lady for all we know right you know that's kind of I mean? what I was thinking. I learned from her and then she probably was I hate to say it like smelling herself a little bit like I have the the resources the funds I could do x y and z right she's taking business from her too we don't know totally and also she is respected while Azor is maligned right yeah it's she's the bougie black lady who can you know do these things you know in a in a nice the outfit and you know right <laughs> do all the things. totally so they they don't let they're now gonna not let the children leave the house because uh she had this vision and this was an right. interesting line that uh lewis says my sister is not unfamiliar with the inside of a mental hospital and mm-hmm. this kind of recalled for me like hysteria around witches and the way moselle's gift has probably been pathologized um and how she's been institutionalized before so Mm -hmm. eve defends moselle and there's this family quarrel that happens at the dinner table and lewis rushes out to see a patient obviously on his way to cheat and he rebuffs Roz. i was like so mad at him in this watching i was like it's so obvious what he's doing uh cicely and Roz have conflict and the, this is the beginning of all of their conflicts. And the children are trapped inside. There's We get this montage of them like playing together, suffering from ennui. Um, there's a lot of Romeo and Juliet references, which I wasn't sure to make of. Like, Cicely quotes Romeo and Juliet in the beginning of the film. And then Eve and Cicely are playing at Romeo and Juliet during the sequence. Uh, not quite sure what to make of that. And... Eve loses it with Moselle and Roz one day and and starts screaming about her father's infidelity. She's the only one who will admit what's happening. (laughs) It's, I mean, Moselle even cannot do it because she's too connected to him as her brother. Like, she can't. But it's also interesting because they, like, get on Eve for, like, her and her mother's feelings. But I'm just like... I get it, but also, like, she's the child. Like, isn't this, like, traumatic for the kids to, like... It's so wrong. They're like, you're hurting her feelings. No, Lewis is hurting her feelings. (laughs) Like, it's... I mean, it's projection. It's, like, gaslighting. The the Mm -hmm. adults do not have appropriate relationships with the kids in this movie. Um, Moselle tells the story of uh, how her husband Maynard died 
which I absolutely love this scene. She's telling the story of she had this lover named Hosea who made her so hot that she had to put ice cubes on her face and neck thinking about him. Wow. Uh, and she has this memory in the mirror. She's like watching the memory play out in the mirror. There's just like so many layers here. And she of Hosea came to her house one night and was like, oh, Moselle's going to leave with me. And, and Maynard was like, she's not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, he he like puts the, you know, puts Hosea pulls out a gun and he steps into it. And he's like, well, I guess you're just going to have to kill me. And uh, Moselle, that's when Moselle realized that she loved him. And uh, which is so toxic. <laughs> but it's. I just like what do you make of that with her character this this memory you know i want to i want to sit with this for a second because i'm actually every time i watch that scene i get chills because there's also something about um how she's voicing everything too so there's like this lip syncing thing that happens but you also hear like the deepness and the depth of like the husband's voices at the simultaneously. Yes. And so I always thought it was just interesting. Cause as a kid, it sounded creepier to me for some reason. Like I always was like, ah, it's like a demon talking for some reason. That was how it sounded to me as a child. But it's- when I look back at it, it's, I feel like it's important because um, you're getting the understanding of like the views you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just the way that there's a mirror. You know what I'm saying? And part of me wonders, I never made this connection before, but it actually is reminiscent of what ends up happening. Whereas, okay, so in this scene, let's like, let's do this again. So there's Eve listening to Moselle tell this story. So in this scene, you actually see Eve, Moselle, um, Hosea, and um, Maynard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? In this scene. But at the end, you actually see it play out again with Eve as a witness to something traumatic that is very similar, where there's infidelity, her father, the other woman, and this other person who's kind of like, you're not leaving with my wife. Yes. But it's in the, in the reverse. So instead of the husband saying, you're going to have to kill me, and the lover shooting the husband, the, the roles are actually um, switched. Yes. We're actually seeing like a mirrored image of what ends up happening at the end, but just different key players. Yes. Same way, though. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's also the part where she steps, she turns away from the mirror and steps into the memory, but we still see it happening in the mirror. But she's right. become part of it. I mean, all of this is really just about memory and trauma and how those things stay at the front of your consciousness and also mm-hmm. how the telling of it changes based on the perspective that you're telling the memory from based on who's, right. who's mem- remembering it. And yeah, there's just, it's just a very brilliant kind of illustration of all of the themes in the film. It is. It yeah. Because it makes 
Likewise, too. She's a storyteller. Like, Moselle is an incredible storyteller. In a roundabout way, Eve becomes a figure who can also tell stories in the same way. Not only is she a seer or a person with a gift of sight like her aunt, she's also a storyteller. She's yes. telling this folklore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this entire thing. So I think it's interesting because she's also getting practice and she's learning how to tell a story. Yes. Yeah, she is... Oh basically a Moselle's apprentice learning mm-hmm. all of these things from her learning how and also learning how to hold the memories of mm-hmm. of every everybody um mm-hmm. which is the job of the storyteller so yeah and then Moselle this story about her having a lover and then you know realizing that she loves her husband the fact the way that this um links her to her brother is also a gender transgression which is mm-hmm. what I was thinking about on this viewing, like the way that she is this adulterer and she's able to, in her version of the story, she's kind of able to be an adulterer that finds redemption in the way that right. men are. And she also feels shame. Yes. There's like a, a theme of shame here in that she feels ashamed of what happened. Like she's proud that her husband stands up for her, but she has shame about what happened. Yes. You know, in a roundabout way, which is why she's so um, scared to be in a new relationship because it's not just because she's afraid that people will die. It's also because of the decisions that she feels like she's made. Yes. That's fostered some of these things happening. Whereas her brother is just very like shameless. Yes. In all of life. Yes. Like, he taunts that man until, like, right. he kills him. You right. know what I mean? Like, even in front of his daughter, like, shamelessly is like. He's absolutely shameless. I'll see you, yeah. you know, just stuff like that. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, there's this moment where Lewis comes home and Cicely is making him a drink, just kind of like highlighted to me the inappropriate relationships that the adults have with children. Um, mm. There's the. It's it's raining, so and this mysterious man approaches. This is when we meet Julian Gray Raven, who is this man with long gray hair, who wants Moselle to help him, um, because his wife left him a year ago and he's searching for her, and he wants Moselle to tell him where he is, where she is, and this character is, uh. An interesting character as well, like his last name, Grey Raven, leads me to believe that he's part indigenous. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's, you know, like like you were saying, this is a very, this is a quintessentially like diasporic story because there are all of these (laughs) different elements coming together and people of different um, backgrounds embodying these diasporic (laughs) elements and these these very American diasporic elements as well. Particularly since, like, I'm glad you brought up the, like, the aspect of, of indigeneity that Lovecraft Country, I guess a future for Journey Smollett, doesn't do well, but that's a whole other discussion. Right. But I think it demonstrates that indigeneity doesn't necessarily mean that we're just talking about people native of this land, but maybe from other parts as well. So there are Black people who are indigenous as well. So I think that's an excellent point. Right. Yes. The, the the in this character is like these this the tension between these different kinds of indigeneity. Yeah. Exactly. 
Mm-hmm. So, and that history also, and also a hit the history between African American people and Indigenous American people, right, um, right, which is Im- just implied through the in through this character. So, mm-hmm. so Moselle has a vision of Julian's wife having sex with another man, not just having sex with another man, but like really, <laughs> like. Have going at it. Yeah, really going at it. So not just she says like she's not just having sex with somebody else, she's in love with somebody else. Um mm-hmm. so their relationship between Moselle and Grey Raven um escalates very quickly. He paints her portraits, they begin an affair. Um Sicily goes missing in the rain and returns mm-hmm. saying that she visited her daddy and got a new haircut. <laughs> And she's, the scene is so hard. She's totally defiant now. And like not in, Roz is just not in control of her anymore. And Roz slaps her. And uh, later that night, Roz and Cicely have this confrontation um, where Roz says, when I was your age, I was just like you. And she's staring out the window, like staring into the rain. And Cicely is like, they kind of look alike. Like they have the same haircut now. They're they're wearing um, very similar night clothes. And um, Lynn Whitfield said that Cassie, like she had originally done this scene where she was looking into Megan Good's eyes. But Cassie Lemons told her to look outside the window while she was delivering the monologue. And yeah, it's very that kind of it makes it much more like spooky. And um, Roz is like really going through some trauma and remembering her own the, her, remembering her trauma of being Cicely's age also. So we know some. There's a story there. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Like, oh, listen. Oof. Okay. That's actually really deep because this just kind of tells the same story, the horrors, and over and over again, yes. generationally. Intergenerational of, like, trauma. Right. And I think what bothers me so much, I, I really think about this. I think about my mother's generation, my grandmother's generation, my great grandmother's generation. And it seems like all of us have the same story of adultification, you know, as black girls. And I mean, truly, the cycle, I don't think is it, the cycle is not just about families. It's also about communities. You know what I'm saying? Um, because you could do the best job, and I put this in quotes, in the world of, you know, raising your child and treating them as such. And there will always be somebody in community seeking to, you know, place that sexualized gaze onto a child. Yes. And it's like, how does a child escape something like that? It's so, you know what I'm saying? It's so antagonistic. It's so monstrous. And yet yes. it happens every day. It's it's a common sense aspect of like something like Kara Killen talks about constantly and consistently in The Witch's Flight, the common sense part. But it's almost like a common sense aspect of Black life for girls um, or for children, period, who are vulnerable populations of people 
to have to constantly go through this type of gaze. Yes. It's, it's horrific. It My is goodness. horrific. And it really is captured in this haunting moment where oh. Roz is recalling. I mean, like you were asking me earlier how the, this dynamic plays out in white families. And yeah. My frame yeah. of reference is I'm coming from a Jewish family, so okay. which is not I mean, not to say that we're not white, but it's it it's which is culturally a bit different than like a, a traditional like wasp family, right? So when I was watching this when I was a kid, like I actually heavily related to this because Jewish families are very close knit in this kind of way. There's an adultification that happens of the eldest daughter that I can relate to as well. Um, And I can remember feeling from a very young age, very adultified, very like expected to carry family trauma, expected to hold these things and not question them or you know and I can remember my mother telling me of of times you know that you know trauma she went through and not wanting me to go through that trauma so I think there is there is something that happens in Jewish families where things are spoken more than they are in like a wasp family so I don't I don't know how this would play out in that sort of environment Um, but yeah, there's there is something the adultification of of the black children in this film is so like they are they're these are the most the the way that the the black children in this film are so dynamic and that they are so steadfastly children and yet the adults continue to Mm -hmm. adultify them like having them make their drinks Mm -hmm. telling them things telling them inappropriate stories telling them um Mm -hmm. you know like that they're going to beat their ass if they ask questions like it's Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. very yeah, there is, you know, I'm not, I don't even know where I'm going with that, but it's just, it recalls, I think, trauma for so many young women, especially like it's something I can relate to. So I can only imagine the trauma mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. watching that as a black woman. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, if, if I'm relating to that, how that can resonate so much with somebody who actually has a more similar experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just it's I think it's interesting because I'm I think about so um I think about how for my family I came from a very Christian household. Um my father being uh an ordained minister growing up and then becoming a pastor when I was fifteen. And my parents' dedication to making sure that I was a child mm. was so outside world's dedication to making sure that this does not happen. Right, you know what I'm saying? Right. So my parents, I feel like we're at war with the world in, the, in like regard to my right. or my childlikeness. And they wanted these things for me. But I remember in my early part of my teens, it was over. Like, There's nothing your parents could I do felt, to protect you from that. Yeah, right. I feel like it was over. They ever, I feel like in my viewpoint, of course, there are things that, you know, parents could always do better. But I feel like they did everything in their power to protect me. And I feel like they did the best they could. And things just still happened because right. you can't 
that's just not what parenting is about. You know what I'm saying? And things happen. So I was just like, well, here I am. I know that I'm a kid, but I don't feel like one. You know right. what I'm saying? I, I just have that feeling. You walk down the street. I remember the horror and the terror of um, noticing it first at church, you know, being with my father. I, I didn't really, I was one of those kids that was kind of weird around anybody who wasn't my dad. So I would cling onto his leg. And I remember like the first time I noticed that somebody was looking at me, but it didn't seem like a, a, a normal kind of look. I was like three. And that kind of stuck with me. I don't know. It just, I, I never was able to shake it. The other event that I think I remember is being 10. My mother took me to the mall. We were like Claire's or Icing or something, you know, some like really little girl place, yes. you know, something like that. We were there and I, we might even went to the children's place. I'm pretty sure we did, to be honest. And I remember my mom said, you know what, sweetie, let's go. And there was like a man and I guess his girlfriend, wife, partner, whatever. And he had a small child with him. And I remember our eyes just locking. And I just remember feeling frozen, kind of. And my mother just saying, let's go, baby, let's go. And we went home and I, I just remember going home and not, not thinking any more of it and hearing my mother sound like she was weeping. And she was talking to my father. And she says, you know, this happens all the time. You know, we go places and they just look at her. They just look at her. And I knew that she was talking about me. And my dad is just like, it's just getting this, this world just is so crazy. Like yeah. th- that was just literally, I remember hearing my dad say, and he's just like, well, you know, we're doing everything that we can. We're going to keep her safe. And I remember him saying that. So I hear two concerned parents talking about this, discussing their day. My mother being like, this is just disgusting to me. Not putting any of the blame on me, but me just kind of walking away and just kind of thinking like, okay, so this isn't normal what I'm saying. Right. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So if I'm imagining if I'm going through this as like a, a 10 year old child, you know, at this age, I now as an adult woman sometimes walk down the street. Well, I mean, before COVID um, hit in the pandemic. <laughs> when we used to walk down the street. <laughs> yeah, right, when we used to walk down the street. And I just remember like, when you could, I could see it. These like middle school age girls, these high school age girls, these elementary school age um, little black girls. And I want to scream at the top of my lungs because I can literally see what people are doing. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I just wish I could protect them all. I want to scream at everybody. I want to cuss everybody out. Yeah. But there's so many of them out there in this world and it's so normal. Yes. And I can, I mean, like, I can even remember that's making me think of when I was a kid and I I was like eating a popsicle in public and my mom was like, don't do that. And like, didn't explain it to me. But it's like, her trauma of of experiencing that I like, took that on in that Mm -hmm. moment. And it's like her trying to protect me, but also like kind of traumatizing me by pointing it out right so it's like what is even it's like a a kid young girl can't even eat a fucking popsicle especially if that girl is in any way deviant which black girls are considered to be automatically and like Mm -hmm. in my case it was just because I was developed very early and 
was adultified for that reason and for black girls it's literally just for being black um so it's yeah i like literally i'm glad you're saying this too because we were talking about a little bit earlier like this whole implication of size and like what does it mean you know there really is not a real rhyme or reasoning for those kind of predatory behaviors. We try to find reasons, you know, to justify it. Cause I remember there was a girl that I went to school with and she was very tall, like a very tall fourth, fifth grader, very developed. And we were in the same grade. Oh my goodness. Like she, it was, it was interesting. Cause I remember thinking like I have breasts, but not like that. I remember thinking that as a kid and she I think because of the ways that people treated her, she just seemed so much older than the rest yes. of us. And that was only the way that people were treating her. Yes. And I remember too the experience of like feeling upset because one day I had to put a bra on and I was like, no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the reasons were literally because people were staring. Yes. It's and not I was like, because I want- you need a bra. Was- yeah. Right. I was like, I wanted to wear my undershirt. Or whatever it was that I was wearing. And those undershirt days, all of a sudden, were gone. I, right. I remember, like... It's a trauma. It's a trauma. I, I had to start wearing a bra at eight years old. Like, it's... I was eight when I started yeah, wearing a bra. You have to... It's, it's a trauma. You're ushered out of childhood non-consensually because grown men are predators. It's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't even... You don't even really realize... Like, you don't even really get it at that age. Oh, listen, I remember going to even something like the doctor was traumatic, too, because um, I was one of those um, young people who got, you know, started like menstruating like at a I guess I don't want to say at an early age, but at an age that some people are like, whoa, I was like nine or 10 Mm -hmm. or something like that. And I had severe cramps. So my mother was like, we have to figure out what to do because I don't want my baby going to every, every like month. Like I'll be screaming in pain at school. Somebody would have to pick me up from school. And like oh, I would take a nap thing. for the rest of the day. I was one of those kids, right? So my mom took me to the doctor. And the first thing that they asked, is she pregnant? And I'm like, my nine. mother just out. <laughs> like my mother flipped out like, and they were like, well, you know, stranger things have been known to happen. She's like, yeah, but why would that be the first? I'm telling you, it's her period. And you're telling me, ask me if she's pregnant. And they were like, well, we have to ask these things. And they were like, well, give her some birth control. And she was just like, what What are you doing to my kid? Like, that was her, her whole thing. Right. And I just remember, like, why do I need birth control? And I mean, and I understand the reasons now, but it was just weird. And so my mother was like, there has to be another way. But I just remember being 10. And these are the discussions that are being had when there was, I think that there were other things that could be done. And I think my mother actually figured out a way for me to get through the day and it was helpful, but she had to do the extra work to do that. But all of this pregnant, well, if she's not pregnant, still put her on birth control anyway. These discussions are now like filling me up. And this is just my doctor. You know what I'm saying? Right. My doctor also. And he said, oh, you're done. And I was like, I'm done what? And he's like, you're done growing. You already have breasts. You have your period and you're short. You're done. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> God, I fucking hate doctors. I like. I just remember thinking at 12. Oh, so I'm a woman. 
because it said I'm done. Like I've reached my final form. And it's a strange thing to walk away with as a kid. So some people would say to me like, wow, you're really short. And I remember responding, well, I'm done. You know, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) I mean, like I just relate to Cicely so much in this film because I was also Mm. always accused of like being a liar. And Mm. it's like I was I was fat and I had kidney stones and the doctor like the nurses did not believe me they were like oh she's doing it for attention blah blah blah. so I went hours in the nurse's office in pain writhing in pain before I could like leave school because they didn't believe me and that was like a theme of my life like people not believing that these grown men were harassing me or not believing that a teacher was harassing me or you know all of these which is I think why this character I feel such a closeness to her now watching this because I'm like this is a young woman who is developing sexually because of the and in a certain way because of the things that are around her and right all that's happening is she's being chastised, she's being demonized, she's being treated like she's crazy, and mm-hmm. all she's doing is cre- is is a reasonable res- reasonable response to the things that are happening around her. Absolutely, I, it's Absolutely. what else is she supposed to take from this? What else is she supposed to take from watching her father blatantly cheat? On her mother. Like, how else is she supposed to react to that? And watching her mother's pain in that. Like, that's mm-hmm. very traumatic for her. Um, so late, later that night, speaking of trauma, Eve and Cicely hear their parents fighting. Um, and this is when we learn later that the big event happens. And meanwhile, Grey Raven wants to marry Moselle. And she tries to fight it, but... She's too in love and uh, agrees to marry him. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, um, Moselle and Julian hear screaming and they see that a boy nearby got hit by a bus and died, a young child. And this scene is so uh, dark because the Baptiste children and Moselle and Roz are celebrating because the the child died. So now they can go outside <laughs> and Eve taunts uh, and the grandma is like celebrating a child's death is horrible (laughs) and which you know agreed grandma (laughs) and Eve taunts Cicely over the discovery that Cicely's gotten her period which she has not told anyone Uh, Mm. which is interesting to me like the trauma of of the menstruation um, right is like not just symbolically but now literally ushering her out of childhood like mm-hmm. she is fully like you were saying like I'm done I'm a woman now like mm-hmm. that's you know it's that's why she doesn't tell anyone it's like traumatic for her and mm-hmm. Roz is upset that she didn't tell her and Lewis tries to examine Cicely but she's like not having it um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We learn later why she feels so uncomfortable around Lewis now. Um, mm-hmm. Eve steals a pineapple at the market, um, but she <laughs> stopped in her tracks by Elzora, who stares straight at her and calls her a bad girl. Uh, so that's the beginning of their relationship. And Roz tells Lewis and Cicely 
Roz tells Lewis that Cicely hasn't eaten or slept in two weeks and is basically in like a fugue state, which is very relatable. Been there as a teenager (laughs) after trauma. And the two of them confront her and um, very gently in, you know, in a very kind of progressive way for the 1960s, tell Mm -hmm. her that there is a psychologist that she can go to. That's a, that's away from where they live and, you know, thinks it would be who thinks it would be best for Cicely to get away from her parents for a while. Um, mm-hmm. But they're not going to force her. But Cicely wants to go. And mm. Eve listens from the stairs crying. And th- that night, Eve, you know, implores her sister not to leave and tell and asks her, you know, what's wrong? And this is when we get the story. <laughs> So Cicely tells Eve about the night of the storm. Um, Mm. She was trying to comfort her father. She sat on his lap. She, this is after her mother went to sleep. She's heard their fight. She sits on her dad's lap. She gives him a sweet kiss. And then Cicely says that her father started kissing her um, in a romantic sexual way and she Ah. tried to get away and then he slapped her Mm -hmm. and she ran away then and Eve is so upset by this story I mean she immediately takes Cicely's side and you know says I'll kill him for hurting you and we get this very heartbreaking scene where Cicely is leaving the house and she gets in this car and she looks her and Eve lock eyes and she puts her finger to her mouth like mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. motion for Eve mm-hmm. to not tell anyone and Moselle sees um, mm-hmm. so I mean there's just like so much there of like trauma in between young girls and like secrets and mm-hmm. you know keeping those secrets for each other and on the porch one night Moselle waxes poetic to Eve about like human suffering and the divine point of it all and you know she's mm-hmm. like if you know if there is no point that's really sad <laughs> and right. me as an audience member I'm like yeah <laughs> it is really sad like Right. So Eve asks Moselle how to kill someone with voodoo and disturbed, Moselle asks Eve to give her her hands to read her mind. But something happened. That part is crazy. I was going to ask you what you thought was happening. I was always interested in Jeremy's delivery of that line Mm. because it's that little like. It's the way, it's the gesture. Like, it's the way she asked. Because at first, Moselle was, like, giggling about it. Like, who are you trying to kill? Right. right? And then, like, Jeremy is like, oh, I'm dead serious. Right. And I don't care what you think. It was just like that, you know what I'm saying? It was like a slight little, like, cutting of the eye at Moselle. And, like, I'm going, like, I'm serious. And Moselle immediately, and- like, knows, okay, she's serious. Okay. And that's she's why serious. she's, like, takes her hand. But then Eve, like, blocks her mind from yes. Moselle. She's, like, becoming powerful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's disturbing to Moselle. Uh, 
so Eve steals like some money, some hair from a comb from her father's comb, heads <laughs> heads to the market. I just like have to. She is so resolute in killing her father right now, which is yes, amazing. Yes. I mean, you know, this is kind of almost like a meta rape revenge narrative, also. Um, she steals the hair. She goes to the market. She runs into Mister Moreau. Um, where she also I rec- I forget this actor's name, but I recognized him from Tales from the Hood. Yeah. Um, um he's like one of the greats. Yes. Yeah, what is yes. his name even? Like I forget. Um I don't know why I forget his name, but I know a lot of people who know this guy. Oh really? Um, yes. Oh my god, because he played Huey P. Newton in the one man. Right, show right, right. Um Let's look it up really quickly. Um, oh, the actor's name. Um, uh, Roger. Roger Smith. I just, I always forget the middle name. Oh, really? Okay. It begins with a G. Oh, Roger Guinevere. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Roger Guinevere Smith. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she runs into um, Mr. Moreau and she kind of like plants the seeds of Ooh, her very yeah. skillfully uh, about mm-hmm. uh, Maddie and her father. And mm-hmm. she approaches Elzora. She asks her for help. Elzora gives her 20 bucks and Elzora is like, $20. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so she takes her to her like bayou lair, which is very, very witch, witchy, like on the outskirts <laughs> of town, like on the marshlands. Right. Like right. Right. she is not a respectable witch figure. She, like she is the wit, like the town witch. And right. what I also liked though is that she feeds Eve. Like, she still treats her like a little kid, like, even though mm-hmm. she has this uh, kind of animosity with her and her family, like, right. she's still- That's why you know she's also playing a role in the character. Right, and that's right. Like, that's a very, like, old school, like, look out for, you know, families, even if it's not your child, making sure that they're taken care of, yes. kind of. Yeah, I thought that was know? very, that was a very tender uh, addition, mm-hmm. like, the fact mm-hmm. that they're both eating soup at the table. Uh, mm-hmm. And- Eve tells Elzora she wants to hurt someone. She wants someone dead who's hurting her family. And Elzora is like, I can give you a charm to protect you from this person. And, uh, you know, Eve is like, no, I want him fucking dead. So (laughs) she gives her the like the hair. She gives her $20. Tells her to come back Thursday night. So Eve does eventually go back to Elzora's in the night. She... Elzora surprises Eve by telling her that she's already made a wax coffin with a dead snake inside that with the, the hair of her father in its mouth and buried it. So the spell is done. Uh, so Eve, no, but and Eve is like really surprised because she felt like she had she thought she had some agency over this spell. Like she thought that um, Elzora was going to make her a voodoo doll and that she was going to be able to kill him that way. And she probably never would have actually killed him. Like she probably would have just kept the doll and like you know mm-hmm. had the comfort and the peace of mind knowing she could whenever she wanted to. Right. Right. But this is like final. 
And Elzora, this is like the most witchy Halloweenish part where Eve like runs away and Elzora cackles. <laughs> right, right. That's something like that reminds me a little bit of, um, of course, when you see something like To Kill a Mockingbird. Like those moments remind me of that. So, yeah, yeah, and it's also like the in the Southern Gothic tradition of like the outsider to the community yes. um, yeah. who mm-hmm. can communicate with the child in the way that the adults can like Boo Radley and Scout Scout. yeah Mm -hmm. so Eve runs to the bar to find Lewis who's chatting with Maddie Um, and then there's a confrontation with Mr. Moreau and Lewis at the bar where Mr. Moreau is this is actually very sad Um, Mr. Moreau is like drunk and he says to Lewis I loved you Lewis and because he catches him with Maddie and it's clear to him now that they're having an affair and uh, Lewis mm. says I, and he doesn't say I loved you too he says I love you and it's very it's a very tender moment between two men that we don't often see in film of two mm-hmm. men telling that, them that they love each other mm-hmm. but they cannot get over their masculine posturing enough to actually remember that love because Mr. Moreau tells Lewis if he ever talks to Maddie again, he's going to kill him. And Lewis, being the cocky bastard that he is, he doesn't even care about the safety of his own child. <laughs> like, leaves the bar with Eve and says goodnight to Maddie. And that is like, that's it for Mr. Moreau. And that was. That was the final straw and he shoots him and as he shoots him, the the train goes by and that is how we see that that there's that connection between Moselle's vision of the boy being hit and of Lewis being hit. Also interesting coming to me now that Lewis and the boy, the little boy's death are um, like an amalgamation because Lewis is essentially Mm -hmm. just a child. Like he is a boy. He's a man child. He's which we learn later in the letter that he writes to Moselle. Um, So the end of the, the end of the film, Eve, there's a funeral. um, There's a beautiful shot. Well, there's Eve sees Elzora at the funeral. (laughs) Yep, yep. Yep, mm-hmm. she's everywhere. There's a shot, that beautiful shot of Roz in bed with her children. So Elzora's prophecy of like looking to your children mm-hmm. is fulfilled. And Eve is like languishing in a tree, and Moselle approaches her and tells her about her dream, which is actually a dream that Cassie Lemons had. And mm. she is going to marry Julian, and you know, she thinks like maybe this will turn out better. And she said, she says to Eve that in her dream, Lewis said, tell Eve, I still owe her that dance. Mm. Even from the grave, it's, you know, he still has this power over them. And this is when, Uh. right. (laughs) This is when Eve finds that letter to Moselle and her father's things. So Mm. what is, what is Lewis's, um, interpretation of the events that happened based on that letter there's his interpretation and then there's just his manipulation so right. i'm going to go with his. um according to him he was drunk 
and he was, you know, happy to see his daughter. And he saw, oh, like my daughter's trying to comfort me at, at a, after a long day. And he was like, and I don't know, but like, you know, she literally came on to me, you know, I didn't expect it. And she kissed me and I didn't even realize that she was kissing me, but she was kissing me like a grown woman. And when I realized it was happening, I slapped her and she just got really upset and ran away. Like, that's kind of how I read it. Like, it was this honest mistake because he was drunk. Right. That this And Sicily is the, 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 the temptress. <laughs> Right, the child temptress, exactly. And I was just like, okay. But here's the thing. Now, based on this, what do you think Moselle did? Because we know that Moselle confronted him. When did she confront him, though? Right. I just want to know. I want to know because I have some theories about the death. I have some, like, things going on in my mind because I don't feel like... I feel like there's like a, a number of ways that he could have died. There could have just been the fact that, well, you were a jerk. So unfortunately, if you just didn't say what you said, maybe you would have lived. There's right. that. There's also like, even a roundabout way, did plant some seeds. And then there's a point because Moselle found out, I'm not convinced that she didn't do something. Either. Right. That's a good, that's also right. I mean, she's a kinder woman. I'm pretty sure, like, the way that she felt about those children, she would have done anything for them. Because I'll be honest, she seemed very calm. Like She did. Very empathetic toward what was happening, but very, very calm considering the circumstances. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. What really happened? Yeah, and it's... The interesting thing, too, in the letter is he talks about needing to be a hero, and mm-hmm. that is why he that's also why he can't say no to these women who, you know, want to, to fuck the town doctor because he, you know, he needs that validation, um, which is like something we usually think of women needing. Right. But <laughs> what you I'm say? glad we're talking about doctors, though, because like think about like doctors and patients. Right. There's sort of like this weird breach, even of consent between a doctor and a patient that's that's not supposed to be happening. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, he so part of me had bad boundaries for a while. Right, he had bad boundaries. So part of me is like, we know that he was doing these things with these women, but were some of these women also mentally ill? Like, you know what I'm saying? Were they mentally disabled people? Were these some of these women people that maybe like were they slightly sedated and he was doing things? Right. We really don't know what kind of healer in quotes he was. Right, right. Yeah. It brings into question like so much of his character and what what we're seeing is the perspective of the women and how they see him. We're not seeing mm-hmm who he really is and when you distill who he really is it's not that great like he's not a great guy like just because he's a respected doctor and yeah this this letter and the way that he says that he needs to be a hero and he you know it's this vulnerability but it's also there's a lot of manipulation in his vulnerability and it reminds me it reminds me of the way that when Eve confronted him and he was like, you know, I love you. 
Like it's a manipulation of love, a manipulation of the way that people see him. Right. So Eve confronts Sicily and, you know, she's like, you lied to me. And she tells her she needs to know what happened and Mm -hmm. gives Sicily her hands. But nothing is Mm -hmm. solved through that because even poor Sicily doesn't know what happened. So there's a con there there can be it's it's an interesting question of these visions because like in some ways the visions are seen as truth but then in moments like this the visions are really subjective and eve can't Mm -hmm. see what actually happened because cicely herself doesn't even know right i for some reason think that eve realized what happened Mm. because remember he's crying and screaming at his sister that you lied to me but after she did it, there was a calm. Right. Because I think she realized, okay, daddy did do something. Right. And and I know you're probably going to talk about it, like what happens with the letter. Well, yeah. They, so, so what happens is they put it in the water and, you know, it, you know they kind of destroy it that way. Or like they right. float it into the bayou. And that's probably because it's like at that point, they know what the truth is, right? Yes. It's kind of. Like, Moselle knows that something went down and I believe that she saw it too I yes. think that she saw it at some point I don't know when she saw it but I think she saw it because she could have seen it either from the perspective of Sicily by like perhaps grabbing her hands um, even though it's interesting because when Moselle does that it requires a certain level of consent so I wonder when did she have that moment to kind of maybe see it from maybe either Cecily's perspective or even Lewis's perspective. But we know that she knows something. Right. We know that Cecily doesn't feel comfortable with like her father. We know that some she knows something went wrong. She doesn't know exactly what. And we know that Eve is like, okay, now I got a little piece of the the puzzle too. All of them, it seems like they can agree that something went wrong. It happened. But they know that Cecily's not at fault. And I think that that's interesting. But it's interesting because the us, we walk away like, oh, like what in the world? Like she's just a liar. Right. But it's it's crazy to me that I thought that because I don't. But Eve is so calm after that. I think she actually found out what she needed to know. And maybe it's like, well, daddy's gone. He's laid to rest now, and we're going to lay the situation to rest, but we know it happened. Yes. You know. And let's get rid of this, because maybe not even just because we want to keep this from Mama or whatever, because here's the thing. Just like Eve went in there and was, like, playing with her father's stuff and then grabbed the letter, there's no way that most, like, um, um, not Moselle, uh, Roz didn't see that letter. Right. There's no way that Roz didn't get it. Like, come on. Right. The the child finds it, but not the wife who has, like, access to these kinds of things. I mean, I think, like, the impression I get when Lewis dies is that they're kind of relieved. Like, they're kind of just like, this is tragic. And but they're Mm -hmm. they can now kind of be like a little insular society of women instead of like this man kind of controlling what happens based on his own irrational actions and feelings. 
Like it's kind of a, a great calm that happens at the end of the film. And that's illustrated by them putting this letter in the water. And um, there's this really beautiful ending shot of Eve and Cicely holding hands on the bayou looking out. And there's that ending narration where she says, we were named for Eve Batiste. I have the gift of sight. But the truth changes color. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, some printed on the brain. And then there's that beautiful ending music that swells. And that's it. And we're just kind of left with, you know, a feeling and and lots of questions. And Mm. this, it's, yeah, it's just a really effective piece of art from beginning to end and to end with like a a figure from their uh from the past like their their ancestor who clearly there was like this uh blur of consensual lines for that to be truth too at the end for that to come up again that demonstrates to me that that's kind of probably what it was like that's exactly what they're trying to say it was right like there was a thing that was not consensual happen, but the but it's supposed to be wielded into this truth of there's just a one big blur and one big mess that we can't really make sense of. But the common sense of the fact that like it's slavery. Right. What is consent in slavery when you're property? You know what I'm right. saying? What then is there's consent like consent when you're a child and this is child. your mother. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes right back to those lines yeah yeah so this was an amazing great discussion thank you so much um no thank you this is great where can i am such a huge fan of you and all of the work that you do my roommate sent me your twitter and sent me um some things that you've written and that's how i saw that's how i found you so where that's how i was introduced to your work where can people find you on social media if you want them to oh sure um first of all thank you for having me this was great i had never done this type of a an analysis of eve's bayou before and and death like this this is incredible um but i can be found at Thingly Grammar on Twitter, just like at T-H-I-N-G-L-Y-G-R-A-M-M-A-R um, on Twitter and on, I guess, Instagram at Z-A-L-U-I-B-A-O-R-I-M-I. Amazing. Yep. And you are definitely a must follow on Twitter. You have a lot of really interesting, important things to say about Lovecraft Country, which definitely relates to this film and Journey Smollett is in it. It's also like kind of a Southern Gothic in some ways. And some of the outfits make it in the show. Yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely follow uh, Zalika there. And you can find me at Girls Guts Jallo on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow me. You can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Girls Guts Jallo. And uh, thank you, Zalika, for joining me again. Thank you so much. Could have now known that when losing hurt you so very bad 
Feel like my life is just existing. 